38. And I'll pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for um, this time of worship together. Lord, where we could lift our voices and give thanks and sing praise and to be reminded, God, of your love and your goodness for us, but also, Lord, of this living hope that we have. And even as that last song reminded us, Lord, you're coming back and you're coming back soon. And Father, as we've seen in this last week, um, great turmoil across the, the, the world, globally speaking, with more acts of terrorism and even in our own country, Lord, with a lot of the civil unrest, with some of the the racial hatred that's um, being expressed by people and and then hatred being expressed in return towards them. Um, Father, it's it's a sad thing and we pray for your intervention. Um, and God, we ask, Lord, that um, you would bring peace. And um, Lord, we know that ultimately true peace won't be here until you're on your throne ruling and reigning. But nevertheless, Lord, you can work through us, your church. And I pray that we as your church, Lord, would stand up against the evil that we see, that we would be um, your beacons of hope and your instruments of love, God, and that we would do, as you said on the Sermon on the Mount, that we wouldn't be like the rest of those in the world, but God, that we would pray for those who who um, hurt us and harm us and to do good for those who spitefully use us, Lord, that we wouldn't return evil for evil, but Lord, we would turn good for evil and that we would encourage others to do so as well. Our Father, I pray that you would make us people in a church that are, are gracious and forgiving and merciful. And Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, um, when we ended last week, it was with this reminder that um, the life that we've been given to live, this life that we've been given to live, that it's short and it's temporary. And we might think, well, that's saying the same things, but it's not. It's short and it's temporary, and it's temporary in the sense that we know that there's life to come, but it's short in the sense that even the years that we're given to live here, they go by quickly, and no one's guaranteed tomorrow, the Bible says. We're not, and and, um, we don't know when that day or hour is coming when the Lord will call us to be home, or the day or hour when He's going to return to take us to be with Him. And this life is short and temporary, and remember, we're reminded of that last week, and we're reminded that of this as well, that when our physical bodies finally reaches its expiration date, it does not mean that we simply cease to exist. And, and there are a group of people out there who would like to believe that those kinds of things are true. But it's not. The Bible, doesn't, the Bible makes it clear that, that, that life goes on. And, and God's Word says to us that who we are and really what we are which are now simply dwelling within these physical bodies. Paul says that it's a tent, uh, referring to just the temporariness of um, the physical state that we have now, that these physical bodies, we're told, that who we are and what we are will continue to live on even after the physical one has passed away. And, and, and if any of you are worried about that, the Bible talks about that. That doesn't mean we're just going to be spirits floating around like ghosts, that, that there is a resurrection coming where we will be resurrected into a new body, uh, another physical body, one that is free from the weight of sin, free from the corruption of sin, and, 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 and it's going to be a wonderful thing. And we were reminded all of this last week as we read through uh, chapter 47 and read about Jacob who had reached the age of... 147. And that's, that's quite a feat. And, um, but 
in doing so, in reaching that age, he realized that his time to die had drawn near. And I don't know, if I reach 147, I would probably think that my time to draw near to death would, would, would be on a daily basis. But something was indicating to him that his time to die had drawn near. And with this understanding, Jacob, as most of us do and would, is he began to make some final preparations um, for when he would be gone, for when his physical life would cease to exist on this side of eternity. And in doing so, he sent for his son Joseph. He was dwelling there in the land of Goshen, in Egypt, and as he called for Joseph, his son, to come to him, he made him swear an oath. And you remember, it was an oath to promise to take his body out of Egypt and back to the land of Canaan in order to be buried with his forefathers in a cave that had been called Machpelah. And in light of this, we were pointed to this living hope of life after death and of that resurrection that the Bible speaks of, of, internal, of, of, of going into eternal life that's been made available to us through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and from his own resurrection from the grave. The Bible speaks about that as a first fruits of many that are yet to come, meaning our own, and referring to the fact like Jesus had been raised up from the grave and had been given a new body and new life, we too will have that same experience as a result of our faith in him. And because Jacob had the same living hope, he looking forward to a Messiah, us looking back to the cross and the work that Jesus did, but Jacob looking forward to the hope and the promises that had been handed down by God through Abraham, is, is he desired as a result of that for his burial place, because of that hope, he desired for his burial place to be a cave with two doors in it. That's what Machpelah meant. Um, a, 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 a cave with two doors, a double doors, one with two entrances. Or And, and um, we spoke about that in detail last week. I don't want to go into this again, the significance of it. But that, that cave was also located in a special place as well, back in the Promised Land, one that was to be given to, to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as uh, inheritance, we're told. And, and, and in all of this, in this preparation and doing all of these things, which may seem, who cares, you're dead, right? Where, what does it matter? And in one sense it doesn't, but in the other, these preparations that we make live on as a testimony to those who we live behind. And we talked about that, and for Jacob, this... This act of being desired to be carried out of Egypt 300 miles back to the land of promise to the cave of Machpelah where his forefathers had been buried, he wanted it to be a testimony to his future descendants of how he was not an idol-worship Egyptian, an idol-worshiping Egyptian, but, but a believer in the promises of the true and living God, the promises that God had made to him and his descendants. But making preparations for what for where he was to be buried, it was only one of many that Jacob would do at the end of his life. And in these next two chapters, in chapter 48 and, and, and on into chapter 49, we see that Jacob calls for his sons. He calls his sons back to himself in order that he might speak a final blessing over each one of them. And, and this was a very significant, culturally relevant thing. 
And not only that, it was spiritual. There are great spiritual implications and spiritual representation that we'll be talking about as we go through these things. It was ordained by God. And, and he did this to speak this final blessing over them. And here in chapter 48, we're told about the blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph and to his two sons, specifically Ephraim and Manasseh. And then when we get to chapter 49, we'll read about the blessings that he gave to the rest of his other sons. And in, and in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking about this time, about these events, it tells us that by faith, now remember that this is very significant. This is the reason, the motive behind it. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph and, Joseph, and he worshipped and he leaned upon his staff while leaning upon his staff. And in light of this, we need to see that this next chapter that we're going to be going into, chapter 48, what it does for us is it documents, as it documents one of Jacob's last acts of faith, um, it's, it's revealed to us as he elevates in the process Joseph's two sons and claim them to be equal heirs alongside his other sons. There's this adoption this representation of adoption that takes place and in doing so he blessed them and in doing so he blessed Ephraim he blessed Manasseh but but gave them the 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 the, the, the he gave in doing so this firstborn blessing to Ephraim the younger which was not customary which was not in the right order of doing things um uh, culturally speaking, but he gave that firstborn blessing to Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph's two sons. But he did so, if we look back to Hebrews chapter 11, he did so by faith, right? By faith, in faith, meaning in accordance to what God had shown. Faith comes by hearing, in hearing by the word of God. And, and, and he acted upon that. And by this, what we really see, before we get into this, I want to point out that it reveals something very special about Jacob about this, at this time of his life. It reveals to us the spiritual growth that had taken place in Israel's or Jacob's life. Remember, Jacob at this time, 147 years old, he had walked with God for many years, but not all of his years. He had walked with God for many years, but not all of his years. But as a result of walking with God, we see that Jacob had been radically changed. He was no longer the man that he had used to be. In fact, at his birth, we know that Jacob had, had been given the name Jacob, and God had changed it later to Israel, but he'd been given that, that name Jacob, which means deceiver. And for many years, he worked really hard to live up to that namesake of deceiver as he manipulated and deceived people, including his own brother and his own father, in order to get things his way. But when God first revealed himself to Jacob at Luz, which he will speak of here, or Bethel, as the, as the name is also translated, he was given that new name, the name of Israel, which means a prince of God, or I like this one a little better, one who, was, who is governed by God. And, and, and in that new name, it spoke of that new nature that God began to develop within Jacob. However, this change did not occur instantaneously. It happened gradually throughout the span of his life. And we know, and, and as we see, Jacob at now at the end of his life is apparent that he'd been changed into a man who was now governed by God. 
One who trusted God and who was concerned about pleasing God and doing His will. And this should be an encouragement for all of us. At least it's an encouragement for me because we're all, in, we're all still in this process of being changed by God into men and women who trust in Him, into men and women who are concerned about pleasing Him, into a people who are concerned about doing His will above all else. This is what Jacob reveals at the end of his life. Because just like God was faithful to complete the work that He had begun in Jacob, God, we know, will be faithful to complete the work that He's begun in each one of us. So with that, let's look to chapter 48, verse 1. And I'll read and you can follow along. And in verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass, after these things, and these things being the preparation that Jacob had made with Joseph in the days, perhaps even in the weeks previous to this, about being buried there in the cave of Machpelah. And it came to pass, after these things, that Joseph was told, Indeed your father is sick. So Joseph had gone back home, and so he took with him this time to go down to um, his father, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give you this land as your descendants, after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine, as Reuben and Simeon. They shall be mine. Your offsprings whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go in Ephrath. And I buried her there along the way in Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now, verse 10, The eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. And then verse 11, Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. But in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. And so, Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down to, with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon, let my name be named upon them. And the name of my father, 
fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into the multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And so he took hold of his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. For or this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people. He shall also be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So verse 20, he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim and Manasseh before, or Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, meaning double portion, and, and, and not in addition to his two sons. He said, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. All right, guys, let's look back to the beginning of this chapter. There's some really interesting things going on in here. And um, things really taking place even beneath the surface. And according to these first verses, we see that Jacob, like I said, who is now, the text tells us, 147 years old, he was sick. And, 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 and not only did he have this sense like he had when he first called Joseph that, that his death was near, we know that it was impending. He, he was on death's doorstep, if you would. In fact, he had come to the place where he could no longer see, we're told, and he was confined to his bed. And when Joseph heard that his father was sick, he once again went to him. And the fact that Jacob did everything he could in this moment, at this time, in this condition, to sit up, to muster some strength, to sit up on the side of his bed, that that's noted there for us in order to talk to Joseph about this final matter as a, as a preparation for Joseph and, and his descendants, it shows us really the importance of what was taking place. And in light of this, I want to point out that at this time, one of the things, is, to me, it's, it's, it's not only significant in instances like this, what we're told a person says, but it's also significant about what they don't say. Or the significance is seen in things that they leave out or things that they don't mention. And for example, what, I'm, what I mean in this is, 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 is I want to point out that through this whole thing, through this whole conversation and going on into chapter 49, Jacob never talked about the difficulties of his life. No complaint. Did he have some hard things? Absolutely. Some from his own hand, and some as a result of some evil acts of other people. But he comes to the end of his life, and he's speaking to his son, and there's never a complaint. Never speaks about the difficulties of life. In fact, in this chapter, in this section, he only spoke about what the quote-unquote, the name that he uses here is significant, what the God Almighty had done for him. And that's an important word for us to look at in the Hebrew. And in doing so, we see with the name of God being used there, that Jacob used the, 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 the Hebrew name El Shaddai. And if you were here on Wednesdays a few weeks ago, we went through a, a three-week study on the names of God. But the El Shaddai is used to describe really the, 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 the um, 
infinite and mighty power of God. It, it reminds us, it speaks to us about the control that God has even when everything appears to be out of our control. This is the name that, that, that Jacob uses in referencing God as he's speaking to his son Joseph at the end of his life. God who is in control of all things. The almighty God, the El Shaddai one who has infinite power and infinite strength. And so as we read through this, process that with in mind. That's, the, that's the, 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 the beginning point for all that we hear. That's the lens that, that, that Jacob wanted his son to look through when he's speaking about these things. It's the lens that we must look through in our own lives. Now back in chapter, Genesis chapter 24, building a little context here, when Abraham was nearing his death, we're told that he took action. His, one of his final plans, one of his final acts of preparation at the end of his life was to find a wife for his son Isaac. And, and, and in doing so, to transfer the blessings that God had spoken to him, the covenant that God had made with him, on down to his son. And why was it significant for Isaac to have a wife at that? Because he needed descendants, right? God had promised to make a great nation up out of him. And so Abraham, in realizing God's promises and speaking God's promises and passing them on down, made that final act, that final plan, at the end of his death, to provide for his son. But when Isaac... In Genesis chapter 27, a little bit of a contrast for us, thought that he was going to die. If you remember, all that he wanted to do was have one last good meal. He wanted his favorite meal from his favorite son so that he might bless his favorite son before he died. But the thing about that favorite son, this was the one whom God had not chosen. God had not chosen that son to bear the covenant blessings. But here we see that Jacob's number one concern, or one of his number one concerns, ultimately was to do God's will by blessing Joseph, whom he had made in this section, in this blessing, in this process. He moved him and made him into the position of firstborn. Honored him in doing so. And then from that point to go on and adopt Joseph's two sons as his own, and makes them, as we read here, quote-unquote, sons of Israel. In light of this, we have to see this, guys, before we get into the details of it. In light of this contrast between Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the things that they did at the end of their life, we have to take time to look at this and see that finishing well is what matters. Finishing well matters. And being able to end our life knowing that we have completed God's business the way that He wanted it done is the greatest thing. Finishing well. You know, in the Apostle Paul, he spoke of this when he himself knew that, that, that his life was coming to an end. And, and, and he wrote to the early church through Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy, second letter that he wrote to him, chapter 4, verses 6-8, through eight, he said this, knowing that his life was coming to the end, He said, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. He says, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. 
Not only to me, but also to those who have longed for His appearing. And when we consider the lives of Jacob and Paul, here in this context, we see that in order to reach the end and finishing well, we need to have endurance. Jacob and Paul, if you know their lives, they both needed to have endurance to finish well. Perseverance. And the same is true for us. We need to have endurance. We need to have perseverance. We need to keep our eyes on the finish line so that the reward that has been won for us by Jesus is received. The reward that's waiting for us. Now as Jacob spoke these last words to Joseph, and we're going to look at them here in detail, and told of how God... Uh, excuse me, told of what God had done for him, he began in verses 3 and 4, if you look there, by recounting that time when God had first appeared to him in Luz, which is also called Bethel. And he spoke the same blessings of promise that had been spoken to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. And, and, and he's speaking these things to Joseph, his son. And as, as Jacob did this, we see that he's reminding Joseph Joseph. Of, of, um, he was reminding Joseph of these things of importance as he was making this declaration of faith. This declaration of faith. And in doing so, directing Joseph's attention to the most important thing. To his relationship that he had with God. That was founded on these problems. That was established in the covenant that had been handed down from his from his, his father and from his grandfather. And the relationship ultimately that God desired to have with each and every one of his descendants, the nation of Israel, the children of God. This is what he was reminding his son of, first and foremost. In other words, Jacob was saying to Joseph, remember Joseph, God has called us. What good words to say to your kid if you're on your deathbed. Remember, God has called us. Furthermore, he goes on to say to Joseph that, and remind him that God had given to them this eternal promise. Not only an eternal promise, but an eternal blessing. And in light of that, an everlasting possession. And simply put, Jacob knew that even though his physical body was about to die, he was reassuring his son of this living hope. He was speaking to him about, about how he knew he would live on and take hold of that everlasting possession that God had promised to him. Promises, by the way, that, that according to Ephesians chapter 2 have been extended to us as a result of our own adoption into the family of God. Where, where Paul writes and he says in the book of Ephesians that you are no longer Gentiles. You've been grafted in. And this is a result of our union with Jesus Christ. It's a result of our adoption into the family and God. And, and clearly, we see by this statement, by this restating of what had happened, that Jacob's hope was not in this life. That's what he's saying to his son. Son, my life's expiring, but my life, my hope is not in this life. There's more to this life. And with his death very near, he desired for his son to take comfort in the promises that God had made and in the hope of eternal life. And it's a really cool thing. Remember, Joseph had been separated from his father for 22 years. And even though they had these 17 years of being together, death was on the door. And Joseph was going to lose his father once again. And it had to have been a sad thing for Joseph. He probably had to have said to himself, it's not enough. It's not been enough. 
But his dad was comforting him in the fact that there is more than this life. And the fact of the matter is, the knowledge that a fellow believer will continue to live on in eternity after they have died, it's a comforting thing. And like Jacob was doing for his son Joseph, the knowledge of these things are designed to help us through that grieving process, through that loss that we experience. In fact, this was the message that Paul once again spoke to the early church when he wrote to them in the book of Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. And he said, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or those who have, who have died and passed on or to grieve like the rest of men or the rest of the people who are in the world who have no hope. He says, Why? For we believe that Jesus died and that He rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. And I love that 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 wordage is used there, that that metaphor is given of death there as if it's a sleep. Where we go to sleep and then we wake up. It's a temporary thing. It's not a permanent deal. And that's a comfort if you've lost someone you love. It's a reminder that once again, because of our mutual faith, that we'll see that loved one again. That's where our hope is. That's the promise that God had made to Jacob, and that was what Jacob was reminding his son at this time. Now, in addition to telling Joseph about this first encounter with God that Jacob had there in Luz, Jacob also, at the end of this chapter, in the same language, referring to God as, if you look in the Hebrew, it's the same word, the El Shaddai, there in verse 21, at the end of this chapter, Jacob went on to assure Joseph that God would multiply their number and take them out of Egypt and bring them back into the land of Canaan, just like he had promised. Now that's important. Because if Jacob really believed that, then he would take action that coincided with that belief, would he not? And that's what we read as we, that's what we see as we continue to read on. And because Jacob believed this promise that he stated to Joseph, hey, God's not going to leave us here. After I'm gone, keep that in mind. Not only so you can share that with your own kids who come after I'm gone, but so that you can even begin to make preparations today for that time when God will do what He said He's going to do. And Jacob believed this. And because he believed it, we read in verse 5 as you go on, we read that he in this moment, at this time, with the final preparation, with that hope before him, he honored Joseph as his firstborn. How did he do that? By saying that Ephraim and Manasseh would become his adopted sons. And this meant that they would receive the same birthright inheritance as Jacob's other sons. And we know that in every instance, when we look to the Scriptures, when there's a documentation or an accounting of the tribes of Israel, that Ephraim and Manasseh are always listed. They're always listed. And in that listing, we also know, when you go through the book of Exodus, and you read into the book of Joshua, that when the children of Israel came into the land, and they were casting lots for the land to be appointed or apportioned to them as an inheritance, that Manasseh and Ephraim are both there and received an inheritance. Do you see the connection? Jacob said, hey, we're going to be going back into the land. And because we're going back into the land, son, I'm honoring you as the firstborn. I'm adopting your two sons as my own because there's going to be 
land for them. There's an inheritance for them. God's going to do this. And so I'm stepping forward in faith, believing that God is going to do what He said He would do. Furthermore, we know that just like Jacob's other sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, these guys were apportioned the, the, the point of the land, uh, like I mentioned. But in light of that, what I want you to see, it's important to point out that, that Ephraim and Manasseh's inclusion as we read here in verse 5, or as is pointed out, excuse me, in verse the end of verse 5, the Ephraim and Manasseh's inclusion meant the exclusion of Simeon and, and Levi. And um, when you study this out, what you see is that neither of these tribes received an inheritance in the land. A portion of the promised land was not appointed to them. In fact, in Joshua 19, we're told that Simeon had their inheritance included with Judah as they were absorbed by the tribe of Judah. And when it came to Levi, who became the tribe of priests, we know that they were not given any land on this side of eternity. No inheritance on this side of eternity as they were dispersed literally throughout the promised land and, and were called to dwell within 44 cities so that they might live among and minister to God's people. And when we go through Genesis chapter 49 next week, when we look, if you look ahead for just a second, we will read about the blessings that Jacob spoke over these other sons, and we'll see that God had commanded these things ultimately as a consequence for sin. We go, well, why would God do that? Why would God have Jacob bless these sons of Joseph, replacing two of his natural-born sons, and then excluding them from a temporary uh, an inheritance on this side of eternity? And what we know is, is that it was for consequences of their sins. Specifically, that Simeon and Levi had committed the sins, we're told, at the, at the city of Shechem. Remember that? We read about that a few weeks ago wherein they sought revenge for their daughter, Dinah. And they did so by entering into this peace treaty with the people of Shechem only in order that they might later take advantage of them. And in doing so, we know that they attacked and they killed every male in that city at a time when they were unable or they did not have the strength to defend themselves. An evil thing. And God said, I remember this. And because of that, you're going to have a consequence. You're going to miss out on part of the blessing. And just like Simeon and Levi, who lost their birthright inheritance because of sin, we see that in this section of Scripture that so did Reuben. And why? Because he had also sinned. As a matter of fact, he had sinned against his father by having intimate relations with Bilhah, who was one of his concubines, one of Jacob's concubines. And for this reason, Joseph, who had been faithful, even during times of great adversity, was given this firstborn birthright position and was given this double blessing in regards to the blessing. And all of, all of this is, is explained. You can go there and read. I'm not going to read it this morning, but you can go there and read. It's explained in First Chronicles chapter 5. It's told in detail, verses 1 through 3 specifically. But... As we consider all of this, we need to see this, guys. It may be very obvious, but it needs to be mentioned. We need to consider this. We need to consider and see that with sin, there is a cost. 
even for one who has a covenantal promise, meaning us, with sin comes a cost. And even though none of these three sons, I want to point this out and make it clear, even though none of these three sons, Reuben, Simeon, um, or uh, I can't think of his other name now, Levi, thank you, Even, even though none of these three sons were excluded from the promises of God, the eternal promise of God, what we see is that there was this temporal cost. A temporal cost that had a long-lasting effect as a result of their sin. And these same things are also true in regards to our own sin, in our own lives, as the Word of God over and over and over again makes it clear, either through statement or example, that even though... Our sins, guys, cannot cancel out the eternal promises that, we, that have come to us through our faith in Jesus, right? It's not sin that sends a person to hell. It's rejection of Jesus that sends a person to hell, not sin. So, so even though sin, our sin, cannot cancel out the eternal promises of God that have come to us through our faith in Jesus, there's still a reaping, the Bible says, that will take place as a result of sowing those seeds of sin. Sowing seeds, the Bible says, of unrighteousness. In fact, the Bible teaches us to not be deceived when it comes to this thing. To not be deceived by the temptations of sin, which then in itself presents sin or sinful things always in a favorable light. To not be deceived by the temptations that say, there's not going to be a cost to this. This isn't going to be bad for you. That somehow doing things your way rather than doing things God's way is better. The Bible says don't be deceived by those thoughts, by those temptations. Because when we choose to sin, we'll miss out on God's blessing. At the very least, when we choose to sin, we're going to miss out on the blessings that God has for us. Just like we read here. Because when we choose to sin and miss out on God's blessing, not only is that one of the reasons, but there are also temporal consequences. You may miss out on the blessing, but you're going to also receive an earthly consequence, a temporal consequence. And here's the thing about it that we see in this account is that it has an adverse effect not only on our lives, but even on the lives of our descendants. Even on the lives of our descendants, just like there was eternal concepts, excuse me, long-term consequences that were handed down for Reuben, Simeon, and Levi into their descendants, to their tribes. So as we look ahead and continue on, verse 8 and 9, and also into 10, so because of Joseph's faithfulness, which is the contrast between these other sons, we see that Ephraim and Manasseh became co-heirs with Joseph's older brothers. And we read in verse 10 that when Jacob realized that, that Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, had come with him, he took them, he embraced them, he kissed them. And in verse 11, Jacob spoke to Joseph, and he spoke these words of praise of God, saying, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. I love that statement. And I love this statement of praise because it reminds me of just what our God is like. 
It reminds me of what our God is like and how He is always doing, guys, exceedingly and abundantly above what we could ever ask or think. And God has had done for Jacob who had believed, for Jacob who had thought that for 22 years his son Joseph was dead, God had done more than he could ever ask, more than Jacob could ever ask or ever thought was possible. And I believe that God wants us to know that He can. And I know this is a, I know this is a word for someone here this morning, specifically. God wants you to know that He can and He will do. See, there's, there's a difference there. Because lots of times we know, we go, yeah, I know God can do that, but I don't believe or I don't think He'll do that for me. I know that God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than I could ever think or hope for, but He's going to do it for someone else. He wouldn't do it for me. And that's not true. Because God can and He will do more than you can ever ask or ever think for us. For each one of us. This is who He is. And as Joseph presented his sons to his father... In order that they might be blessed, we're told that Joseph placed his oldest son, Manasseh, in front of his father's right hand, and Ephraim, the younger, in front of Jacob's left hand. In doing so, Joseph positioned the oldest son in the spot under the right hand where he would receive the blessing of the firstborn. But if you look there in verse 14, we're told that as Jacob stretched out his hand, he crossed his arms and he placed his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And that Jacob, we're told, if you look there, that he guided his hands in this way knowingly, purposely, with intention. But in doing so, Jacob was giving the blessing of the firstborn to the younger of Joseph's two sons, not to the older, not to the firstborn. And even though this may seem out of order, when we look back to what the Bible has shown us throughout the book of Genesis, we see a pattern here taking place. In fact, this is the fifth time in the book of Genesis where we read about the reversal of a birth order, where God had ordained it, where God had set it forth. And prior to the instance, this instance here in Genesis chapter 48 with Ephraim and Manasseh having their birthright um, um, being reversed in regards to the blessings of God being bestowed upon them, we know that God had first chose Abel, not Cain. Abel being the second, Cain being the fourth. But also Isaac, and not Ishmael, the younger over the older. Jacob, not Esau. And even though Jacob had a, a hand of deception to play in that role, we know that God had ordained it, that God had spoke it to his mother and to his father, and said this is how it was supposed to be. And here, or and then again with with, with Jacob's own sons, where we see not Reuben, but Joseph. And now he would choose Ephraim over Manasseh. Yet Joseph, who did not really understand at this moment what was going on, he became upset with his father. He actually took his hands and said, no, not so. And he, and he tried to change where his father's hands had been laid. But Jacob, in all this, was guided by God. Remember, back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob did this. And he was well aware of what he was doing. 
And when we consider this as an action of faith, in light of the faith that was leading Jacob to do this, we must consider that even while Jacob was on his deathbed and speaking to Joseph, we must consider that as we look at this whole, that the first thing that we seen Jacob doing was making a declaration of his faith, right? Reminding his son Joseph of what God had done in love, saying, this is my faith, this is my hope, this is what I'm looking forward to, these are the things that God has promised to me. And in doing so, he made a declaration of his faith. But now, in action, with the crossing of his arms and the blessing of the younger over the older, what Jacob was doing was making a demonstration of his faith. First a declaration, and then a demonstration. And so when Joseph in verse 17 and 18 tried to correct his father, Jacob refused him and explained in verse 19 that he had really done this in accordance to God's will. And in light of this, guys, we need to understand this. That our profession of faith, our own profession of faith, is only as good as our our willingness to demonstrate it, to live by it. Our faith, our profession of faith, our declaration of faith is only good as our willingness to demonstrate it, to live by it. And this is one of the reasons for why James writes to us and says that even though we are declared righteous because we believe God and justified before God because of our faith, We're told by James that our faith is revealed by what we do and by the way we live and not just by the words we speak. Jacob's exampling this and blessing these sons of Joseph in the way in which he did. And I think we all know this to be true, but the reminder is necessary because we often fall short of, of the faith that we profess by the way that we live. And how we make these compromises. And how we rationalize doing things that we know that God would not have us do. Or in the moment when faith really calls us to stand and to trust in God, we we somehow transfer that into someone or something else. Now in closing, I want to take a, a final minute to look at this issue of the reversal of the birth order. that is seen over and over again, at least up to this point in the Old Testament. And I want to I wanna look at the reversal of the birth order as it, as it pertains to the Old Testament and relate it to a New Testament spiritual truth that applies to our lives today. For we know that Jesus, if you to read in John chapter 3, that when Jesus in, was speaking in John chapter 3 about salvation in the kingdom of God, to a man by the name of Nicodemus, a religious leader of the Jews, we're told, Jesus said to him this, he said, a man must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus was confused. He didn't understand. Nicodemus said, how can a man yet climb back into his mother's womb and be born again? And then Jesus, of course, was speaking about spiritual things, not about a physical thing. And Jesus went on to explain what he meant by saying that unless a man is born of water, speaking of the physical birth that 
that takes place, born of, 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 of blood and of water. He says, and also of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you and the worship team want to come up, we're going to end with this this morning. And so, when Jesus spoke of this being born again, he was speaking about a spiritual rebirth, right? Not a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth that comes by trusting in Jesus for salvation. The work that, that God did through His Son on the cross. And where Jesus became that sacrifice, that payment for our sin. It tells us that in doing so, that Jesus took upon Himself our sin and then laid upon us His righteousness. And that's afforded to us, that's conveyed to us through faith. And a spiritual rebirth comes in where God's Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. The Bible says where we are reborn into a new man, a new creation, where the old has passed away and the new has come. And when we look to the reversal of the birth order in the Old Testament, in relationship to God finding favor and acceptance with the secondborn over the firstborn, in light of what Jesus speaks to us through Nicodemus, or to, in, in light of what He said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, we see that our birth order, the sinner's birth order, is also reversed in regards to God's favor and God's acceptance when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. In that the blessing... And the inheritance comes through the second birth. And because of our spiritual rebirth, guys, we now have found favor and acceptance of God. And this is all made possible to, because, to us because of, of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Not because of what we've done, but because of the fact that God has chosen us. And in each and in every instance in the Old Testament example, that is true. It wasn't because of what one had done or what one had not done. It was while they were still in the womb that God had chose these things, that God had ordained these things. And the same is true for us today because of our faith. So this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with God's acceptance and favor because of the old man and because of what he does, remember that you're a new man that you're a new creation, that you've received spiritual birth because of what Christ has done on the cross for you. And because of that man, there's an inheritance laid up for you. There's promises that are reserved for you. There is favor and acceptance in the eyes of God because of that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks, God, that you've created in us a new thing, a new man, a new nature, a new heart, and because of that, God, you've laid your hands upon us and you poured out that blessing of firstborn where we have an inheritance that's been laid up for us, that we too have been adopted and brought into your family. And we receive things, God, that we don't deserve because of what you've done. Lord, I'm praying for anyone here this morning who's struggling with really that, that acceptance of your grace, your acceptance of your favor because of of, 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 of their shortcoming because of our own sin, our faults, and our failures. I pray, God, that, I, that they would see, that we would see that we're acceptable to You. 
that you desire good things for us, that you've laid up new things for us. And Father, we look forward to those things this morning. And knowing, God, that you've done that work for us, we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you guys stand? I'll sing a song of worship.